0: I want to focus your attention this morning on the book of Jonah. Uh, we are starting a new series this morning. I'm actually really excited about it. I mentioned last week that the week that I was sick, I decided to preach through Jonah rather than Galatians. The the um, sort of the uh, the plan was to preach through Galatians, and I made a mid course. Uh, change called an audible as I was reading through Jonah and studying Jonah two weeks ago, and decided I want to preach through this. I've preached through the Book of Jonah two other times in my life, uh, once in 2007, once in 2009, uh, and haven't really revisited the book or the, the Jonah or the story of Jonah since then. Um, <clears throat> those sermons were turned into a book. That was published in 2010 or 2011 called Surprised by Grace, hence the name of the uh, sermon series. Um, and since that time, I haven't really gone back to Jonah. And so I went back a couple weeks ago and found myself um, freshly refreshed by uh, everything that is in this short four-chapter book, this short story. Um and this morning, I want to read just three verses, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. If you don't know where Jonah is, it's tucked between Obadiah and Micah, if that helps you. Um, <laughs> um, which I'm sure it does not. It's in the Old Testament, by the way. It's in the Bible. Um, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's a story that I'm sure even if you didn't grow up anywhere near a church, you are somewhat familiar with it. Um And I want to read the first three verses, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let me pray for us again. God, we need to hear your voice. It is your truth alone that sets us free. Your are probing truth that liberates us. And so we need you to do the work this morning. My thoughts, my opinions, my abilities or lack thereof cannot change a human heart. Only you can do that. And so we pray that you would be the preacher this morning, that you would speak to each and every one of us loudly and clearly and compellingly that you would meet us where we are. You know our deepest fears. You know our insecurities. You know our struggles, our secrets, our sins. You know everything there is to know about us. And you've promised to always meet us right where we are. And so we pray that you would once again fulfill that promise to all of us this morning. And as usual, we pray with one voice, come thou fount of every blessing and tune our hearts and our minds to see and to savor your amazing grace. We pray these things in Christ's name, (laughs) amen. Um, So, this part one here of this series is going to be kind of an introduction. It's not kind of an introduction. It's going to be an introduction. If I were to give this particular sermon a title, it would simply be Introduction to Jonah. Uh, And the way that I want to introduce this study and where we're going in this study uh, is by talking for a few minutes about the gospel. For good reason, and we hear it a lot here, sanctuary, but for good reason... Christian people love the word gospel for understandable reasons. The gospel, the word gospel literally means good news. Uh, We talk a lot around here about the centrality of the gospel, how the gospel grounds everything. The gospel is good news, how the gospel really is the hub of the Christian faith. But if I were to ask 10 Christians what the gospel is, most of them would struggle to give an answer. In fact, in my opinion, there's just as much confusion, almost more confusion inside the church as there is outside the church regarding what the gospel is and what the gospel does. And I'm convinced that in order to understand better what the gospel is and what the gospel does, what we need most is to be surprised, even shocked by it. And I believe one of the best books in the Bible for delivering such a jolt is Jonah. That's what it did for me uh, many years ago. I think it was probably 2007 uh, that I was thinking through what to preach the next year And I wanted to do an Old Testament book. And Old Testament books are kind of intimidating for preachers. You know, New Testament books tend to be a little bit easier. We seem to be a little bit more familiar with New Testament books. Old Testament books can be daunting, can be somewhat intimidating. And so I wanted to start off uh, with a digestible Old Testament book. And so I went to Jonah. It's a story that all of us are familiar with. It's a story I was familiar with. It's only four chapters long. So I thought, okay, I can can handle this. Um, What I did not anticipate was the kind of gospel rediscovery in my own life that would happen as a result of diving into this short story. Um, It was the story of Jonah that helped me see that I never, ever outgrow my need to hear the gospel as a Christian. You see, I, I once assumed, and a lot, like a lot of people inside the church, that the gospel was simply what non-Christians need to believe in order to become Christians, in order to be saved, but that once you become a Christian, you don't need to hear the gospel anymore. What you need once you become a Christian is simply instructions on how to live your life. Okay, that's kind of what I thought. So... Growing up, for instance, in some of the churches that I spent time in growing up, um, there was maybe a, a sermon on how to live a better life And then tacked on at the very end was uh, sort of a gospel presentation for maybe people who weren't Christians who were there, okay? And that's so I always assume that the gospel was what is for non-Christians, but Christians, once God saves them, don't need to hear that anymore. That's kind of like the ABCs of Christianity. What we need to hear once God saves us is instructions on how to live. That's the primary thing that we need to hear, Um, But Jonah helped me realize that the gospel isn't the first step in a stairway of truths, but more like the hub in a wheel of truth. In other words, as I said, the gospel isn't simply the ABCs of the Christian faith. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian faith, that once God saves us, he doesn't then move us beyond the gospel into something different. Rather, he moves us more deeply into the gospel. Um, or you could put it this way, the gospel doesn't just ignite the Christian life, it's the fuel that keeps us going every day, okay? Now, um, I, and let, me, let me be blunt, let me put it negatively, that's what the gospel is positively, or at least our need for it positively, let me put it negatively, uh, bluntly. Without the gospel, life in all, and I mean all of its facets, is slavery, You take the gospel out of the equation of life, we are all slaves, all of us. And I want to kind of prove that to you. Um, Without the gospel, relationships are enslaving. Without the gospel, work is enslaving. Without the gospel, pleasure is enslaving. Without the gospel, our accomplishments will enslave us. Our possessions will enslave us. Our pursuits will enslave us, even if they're good pursuits. I'll give you two examples of how this is true. The gospel announces that because of what Jesus has done for us, we have God's full and final acceptance. Therefore, we don't need the acceptance of anybody else. Okay? That is a thrilling note of the gospel. Um, that because of what Jesus has done for us, we already have God's full and final acceptance. And that sets us free from needing the acceptance of anybody or anything else. Now, unless we know this, we will spend our lives trying to get acceptance. We try to get it by being smart. We try to get it by being beautiful. We try to get it by being funny. We try to get it by being good or successful or strong and so on and so forth. In other words, without the gospel, we have to achieve acceptance or we won't be happy. We won't have peace. That's slavery. Or think about love. Example number two. Think about love. The gospel announces that because of what Jesus has done for us, nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Nothing in heaven... Nothing on earth, nothing you do, nothing you fail to do, there's no person, there's no place, there's no thing that can separate you from God's love because of what Jesus has done. The gospel announces that we are unconditionally and eternally loved by God. Now, if we don't revisit this gospel truth all the time, We will spend our lives trying to satisfy our deep need to be loved by trying to extract love from everybody in our lives. We will spend our lives trying to get love from all of the people around us because without it, we can't live. We can't function. We will spend our lives trying to make ourselves lovable and lovely so that we will get the love that we crave. All of that is slavery. You know it, I know it. And those are just two examples. But now you're thinking, okay, that sounds great. What in the world does all of that have to do with Jonah? I mean, seriously, what could a fish-swallows-man story possibly have to do with the gospel? And specifically with everything I just mentioned. Um, well, believe it or not, I hate to disappoint you, But Jonah is not primarily about a fish swallowing a man. That's the part of the story we tend to remember the most, especially if you grew up going to Sunday school, because that's the most fascinating part of the story in one sense. But Jonah really is so much more than that. There is so much here. In fact, it's only four chapters, and I discovered this the first time I preached through it. I thought, you know, four chapters, four-week series. I think it ended up being like two months, which may be what this turns out to be. Who knows? I haven't figured that out yet. Um, but because there's so much here, so much here, Jonah really is a storied presentation of the gospel. You know, in, let's say, Paul's letters, like Galatians or Romans or Ephesians, Paul delivers the gospel in sort of didactic form. He just teaches the truths of it, you know, like like a professor would in a college classroom. Jonah takes a different approach. It's a storied presentation of the gospel. All of the same truths that the apostle Paul talks about in Galatians, Ephesians, Romans, and so on are all here. They're just put in storied form. It's all there but it's just put in a storied form, in a narrative form, which actually, in one sense, makes it more enjoyable. Um, We're listening to someone tell a story rather than someone teach a lesson, if that makes sense. Um, And Jonah really is a storied presentation of the gospel. It's a story of sin and grace. It's a story of desperation and deliverance. It's, it's a story that exposes, believe it or not, this does it. Jonah does this. The story does this. It exposes all the things besides God that we build our lives on. It's a story about where we find our identity. It's a story about idolatry and the things that we actually depend on to make life worth living, to make us feel like we matter. We may say, well, it's God's love for me that makes life worth living. We may say that and believe that, and we know that that's true. But at the functional level, where we live our lives, even if you've been a Christian for 50 years, there are a thousand things and people infinitely smaller than Jesus that you depend on to make your life worth living. And if you don't believe me and you're a parent, um, I can prove that to you very easily. When something tragic happens to one of your children, you want to die, which tells you Tells me, when that's happened to me, um, that at the functional level, I'm depending on the well-being of my children to make life worth living, not God. So I can say I depend on God to make life worth living, but in reality, what I discover is I'm depending on a lot of other things to make life worth living, and the same is true for for all of us It's a story about idolatry. In fact, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, from the belly of the fish, okay, in Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, Jonah says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. It's a book about idolatry. Uh, It's a story that shows how quick you and I are to run from God and what that running looks like and why we do it and how quick God is to run after us. It's a story which shows that while our sin reaches far, God's grace reaches infinitely farther. It's a story of how a God of great expenditure spares no expense to rescue fugitives of grace. That's all in here, believe it or not. All of that stuff is in here as we will see in the coming weeks. So in all of the ways that Jonah is exposed, we are exposed. In all of the ways that God runs after Jonah, God runs after us. In all of the ways that God saves Jonah, God saves us. So the gospel is all throughout Jonah. What does the gospel have to do with Jonah? What does Jonah have to do with the gospel? Everything. In fact, even Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 says about himself that Jonah was a type of savior, but that he, Jesus, is greater than Jonah. He makes that connection in Matthew chapter 12. Well, okay, that's in a sense the end of the introduction, okay? Um, So let's start. Okay, where should we start? At the beginning. It's always wise to begin at the beginning. Um, And our story begins when the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, you probably already know this, but Jonah was a prophet. And the job of the prophet was to say what God wanted the prophet to say and to say it to the people that God wanted the prophet to say it to. So a prophet was God's messenger. He was God's spokesman. He would go and foretell or foretell God's word to whoever God wanted him to say it to. Um, and uh, the typical job of the Old Testament prophets was to go to God's people and speak to them. So God would raise up a prophet from the nation of Israel, and the prophet would be used by God to speak to the God's people, to the people of Israel. Um, now, in some cases, some of the Old Testament prophets were also given a word to speak against the surrounding nations. So it wasn't just that they were only sent to speak to God's people. But once in a while, uh, they were also given a word to speak against the surrounding empires. But to actually be sent to one of those cities, in other words, to give God's message by personal delivery to one of those surrounding nations, was not part of the prophet's normal job description. Okay, so maybe from the comforts and confines of Israel, they would speak against the Babylonians, or they would speak against the Assyrians, but they would never actually go to Assyria or go to Babylon for good reason, you know? I mean, how successful, I heard a preacher this week say, how successful would it have been for a Jewish preacher to stand on the streets of Berlin in 1941 and proclaim the gospel, It wouldn't have gone well. Well, same is true. There's a reason why God didn't typically send one of his prophets himself to a surrounding pagan nation um, to say something that they certainly didn't want to hear. So this is kind of a strange and unique call from God because God tells Jonah to leave Israel, not just to speak Not just to speak against Nineveh, which as we'll see in a minute was the capital of Assyria, but to go there, to go there himself, to make his way to Nineveh, this big evil city, and speak to it. And he didn't say, go say nice things like, hey, God just wants you to know he loves you, you're doing great. That's not what it says, okay? God says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go there and I want you to speak against the evil and the wickedness of those people. Okay, so he wasn't going with a health, wealth, and prosperity message. He was going with a message of judgment. But along with that message of judgment, and we'll see this in the coming weeks, Jonah knew that God was offering them a way out. God was sending Jonah to warn them that if they didn't turn from their wicked ways, that God would destroy them. And so in that sense, he was giving them a way out. If you do turn from your wicked ways, I'll save you. If you don't, I'll destroy you. So, um, so this is kind of a strange, already at the very beginning of Jonah chapter 1, we see, okay, this is a different kind of situation. Because, yes, it's not unique in the sense that God calls Jonah to go speak, it is unique in the sense that God calls Jonah, this Old Testament prophet, to leave home and go to an enemy city and preach against it. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. Okay, let me, this is a bit graphic, but let me read this to you. This is a description of Assyria from one writer that I read this week. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories bragging of whole fields littered with corpses and of cities burned completely to the ground. The emperor Shalemeser III is well known for depicting torture, dismembering, and the decapitations of enemies in grisly detail on large stone panels. Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we've ever known. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm and hand so that they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned children alive. Those who survived the deconstruction of their cities were forced to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have been called a terrorist state. Not only that... But the Assyrian Empire was the greatest world power of that day and the most disturbing threat to Israel's security and survival. In other words, Assyria was Israel's greatest enemy. Okay? So it's important to know all of that stuff because Jonah's response, which we have recorded here uh, in the first three verses, uh, is therefore understandable it shouldn't surprise us. God says, go this way. Jonah's like, I'm going that way. God says, go across land. Jonah says, I'm going across the sea. God says, go north. Jonah goes south, or whatever direction it was. I mean, literally, Jonah goes in the absolute opposite direction. When it says, this is God issues this call, Jonah, go to Nineveh, the greatest enemy that Israel has ever known to this day, go to Nineveh, this wicked, evil city. Everything I just read about Nineveh and about the Assyrian Empire, Jonah and the Israelites knew very well, very well. Um, And so when God says, I want you to go there, not just send them a text, okay, but go in person and stand in the center of the city and say, God is going to destroy you in 30 days because of your evil, wicked ways unless you turn from them. Go do that. Jonah's like, I will go, but not there. I'm going somewhere else. It says he gets up and flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, notice that verse three, and this is important, specifically says he ran from God. Now, for obvious reasons, like I just mentioned, Jonah had a problem with the job he was given, okay? Any of us would. Um, But he had an even bigger problem with the one who gave him the job, big time. He wasn't just running away from a dangerous job, he was running from God. He was, as we'll discover in the next couple weeks, angry at God, frustrated with God, Why? Why did he run from God? I mean, what fool runs from God? Who runs from God? It's futile to even try to run from God. Running from God is a fool's errand. I mean, we can run, but we cannot hide. He's God. Why would he run from God? Why does anybody run from God? Well, he ran for the same reason we all run from God. We just don't trust him. You just don't. You can sit there as piously as you want and say, oh, I trust God. You, you don't, okay? I don't. You don't. None of us do, especially to the degree that he calls us to, which is absolute, total, and completely. Um, I mean, we we trust God when things are going pretty well, when things are going our way, when life is moving in the direction and at the pace we want it to, um, but we get a call like this from God. We find that our trust in God diminishes greatly, just like Jonah's did. Um, Notice what it says immediately following God's call to Jonah. But Jonah rose. All these words are very specific. Jonah rose to flee. You see, to flee from God is to rise against God. It's a defiant claim that my way is better than God's way. It's essentially saying, God, you've gone loco. You don't know what you're doing. You clearly don't care about what's best for me. You clearly don't care about my well-being. If you did, you would never send me to do this. You would never call me to do this. You would never allow this person in my life if you loved me. You would never allow this to happen to me if you cared about me. You you just, you're, it. There are things that happen in life that will cause the person who's been walking with God the longest to question whether God is actually good. I can remember like it was yesterday, uh, six years ago, sitting on a balcony of a condominium that a buddy of mine was letting me stay at. My world was coming crashing down every in all of its details, coming crashing down. And I remember sitting on that balcony just having it out with God going, do you know what you're doing? I mean, seriously, like, does it have You're God. You can fix this. You can somehow make this go away. You can, what is, I mean, I know you're big, but are you good? Okay, I, I don't care how long you've been walking with God. There are things that can and things that have and, or things that will happen in your life that will cause you to question whether God is good, whether you can really trust Him, you know, I used to, I, you know, uh, with Gabe, Nate, and Jenna, I used to pray all the time that God would protect them from making the same mistakes that I made when I was their age. Uh, and my prayer uh, that my prayers sort of shifted since then. It's God, I, I trust you with them more than I trust me with them, and so. Uh, even if you have to, my, my hope for them is that they will come to know you and love you and be known by you and know how much you love them in a way that defines their life. And if you have to take them through the valley of the shadow of death to get them there, do it. But then just give me all of the patience and support I need from you while you're doing it. Um, the reason that Jonah ran from God, the reason that we run from God, is because we have a hard time trusting him. This is essentially what sin is. It's, it's choosing to be our own God. It's placing our trust in ourselves rather than in God. And what we'll see later is that, this is fascinating, twist of events in this story. What we'll see later is that Jonah doesn't run from God because he's afraid of failure. He runs because he's afraid of success. He wants the Ninevites to be wiped off the face of the earth and he knows that God is offering them a way out and he can't stand that. The idea that his God would be merciful to his enemies is something that's causing him to question the goodness of God. It's it's something that's causing him to question whether he can trust God. He knows, so funny, Robert Frost put it this way, Jonah knows that he cannot trust God to be unmerciful. He knows. He's like, I don't want God to show mercy to these people. And God is just so dang merciful. And I'm fine with that when it's directed to me. I'm not fine with that when it's directed to them. I don't want them to get mercy. I've said this before, you've heard me say it, every single one of us believes in law and grace. It's just that we believe laws for other people and grace is for us, okay? Um, we are great, as you've heard me say before, we are great lawyers when it comes to our own faults and great judges when it comes to the faults of others. Um, I mean, he, Jonah wants Nineveh to be wiped off the face of the earth and he knows that he cannot trust God to be unmerciful. He runs because he's afraid of success if he was guaranteed that he could show up to Nineveh, preach this message of judgment, turn around, walk away unscathed, and 30 days, God would have wiped this city and this empire off the face of the earth, he would have gone. He didn't go because he knew God. And he didn't like what he knew as it pertained to the Ninevites. Now, if we're... If we're honest, we'd admit that this sounds kind of familiar. Hey, this is not all that foreign from our own experience. Uh, Things happen in our lives that cause us to question whether or not God knows what he's doing. She leaves you. You lose your job. He betrays you. You get a bad doctor's report. When things happen that we don't understand, or specifically when things happen that we don't like, We question whether we can trust God. Does God really care about me? Does I mean, can I really trust Him to do what's best for me? Is my best interest important to God at all? If it was, this wouldn't be happening, she wouldn't have left, he wouldn't have done that, they wouldn't have done this. You see, Jonah, like us, thinks that running from God will make him free. That's what he thinks. I know how to get away from this untrustworthy God. I'll run away from him. I'll get as far away from this God as I possibly can. He thinks running from God will make him free. What he doesn't realize is that running from God makes him a slave. I said this two weeks ago. You want to know what, maybe it was last week, I don't remember. Uh, you want to know what real slavery is? Self-reliance. Self-reliance. You've experienced it, I've experienced it. When you, it sounds empowering when people tell us, depend on you. You have the strength to make it happen. Trust yourself. It sounds empowering, but you know it's enslaving. It's totally, it's self-reliance is is enslaving. When you live life believing that everything kids, money, relationships, career, whatever, when you live life believing that everything depends on you, you are enslaved to your own abilities or lack thereof. You're enslaved to your own strengths, your own weaknesses, your own capacity or lack thereof. You're, you're, you're limited to just you and whatever resources you bring to the table, which you quickly discover are not very much, especially in times of crisis, in times of ache, in moments where you want something to happen a certain way and it isn't and there's nothing you can do about it. When you reach the end, see running from God means that you're placing ultimate trust in what you think is best, not what God says is best. You're choosing to be your own God, which is a burden you can't bear. Martin Luther called it the life of an unhappy God. When you and I try to do God's job, when we take the reins or think we're taking the reins from God and we say, thank you very much for your advice, I'll take it from here. Now, this could have well been the end of Jonah's story. I mean, right here after three verses. God says, go. Jonah says, no. God says, all right, forget you, man. I can raise, what did Jesus say when he was on the donkey making his way to Jerusalem, triumphant entry right before his death, a week before his death. And the people were praising him and putting palm branches down and the religious leaders hated it. And they said to him, make your people stop. And Jesus said, even if they stop, the rocks will cry out in praise. God is not limited here to Jonah. Okay, I mean, God could have... God could have delivered this message any way he wanted to. He could have sent the archangel Gabriel to Nineveh if he wanted to, which means that God's ultimate mission here isn't Nineveh, it's Jonah. He's doing something for him. He's doing something to him. He's getting ready to expose him. He knows that however enslaved the Ninevites might be, Jonah is enslaved in a deeper way. He's going after him. What we'll see next week, I think it's next week. Maybe it's the week after. I don't know. You're just going to have to keep coming to find out. Um, but we see this storm, this God sent storm, as punishment from God for Jonah's flight. It's really not. It's divine intervention, as we'll see in a couple of weeks. So, I mean, this you know—this could have been the end of Jonah's story. I'm right here after three verses. I mean, as a prophet, he's through. God will simply have to raise up another messenger to send to Nineveh. But there's so much more to it than that. As we will see, God and this story continue to be full of surprises. Full of surprises. Jonah's story is our story. And it's a story that shows how God is in the business of relentlessly pursuing rebels like us. And he comes after us not to angrily strip away our freedom, but to affectionately strip away our slavery so that we might become truly free. The reason God runs after Jonah is not to spank him for being bad, It's to set them free, as we'll see. Well, let me just conclude with this. Um, I see I'm excited about this. Like this series, I'm stoked about this series, okay? And I hope you guys will be also. Um, It's just that the story is just packed with stuff, packed. It touches every part of our life, believe it or not. Um, Many years after Jonah, God sent another messenger to hostile territory. But unlike Jonah, this messenger went willingly and joyfully because he trusted the heart of God. He was, in fact, the heart of God. Jonah ran from God. Jesus ran for God. Jonah was all about self-protection. Jesus, this one that was greater than Jonah was all about self-sacrifice. Jonah wanted his enemies to die. Jesus wanted to rescue his enemies. He would be called the the John, the disciple John in the Gospel of John chapter 1 refers to Jesus as the Word. He would be called the Word because he himself would be God's message. He was, Jesus was everything God wanted to say to the world in a person. And like Jonah, he would spend three days in utter darkness, Jonah in the belly of a fish, Jesus in the belly of a tomb. But he would emerge with determination, loving determination to pursue his enemies with life-giving love for the purpose of saving them. This This is the Christ of Christianity. A God who endures our sense of entitlement, absorbs our rebellion, and keeps coming after us until our hearts melt under the heat of his love. That's who he is. So as the old hymn puts it, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free for oh my God, it, that mercy, found out me. Let's pray together.